This is Two Minutes About Time with Luke Allen and Robert E.G. Black, the podcast that takes a look at the film About Time, two minutes at a time. I am Richard Curtis, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, you can just travel back in time two minutes and listen to something else. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen, joined as always with my co-host, Robert E.G. Black. Hello. And our special guest for this week, Piot. Good evening. Hi, uh, so today we're looking at minute thirty of about time, and then we've got our uh, our our other minute that we go go to, <laughs> which we'll which we'll talk about as that comes up. So minute thirty starts with the line, "I've lived many weary years," which Tim then says, "It's brilliant, but never in that long catalogue of wasted time have I ever seen such an atrocious miscarriage of justice." Do the prosecution have anything final to add? And that's the only dialogue in this. And it, which is which just surprised me, to be honest, because I remember this whole thing taking place being a lot quicker than it is. What do you mean, lot quicker? Yeah. Like, quicker. Uh, like, like the whole scene happening and the act getting the dry and all of that. Like, I, I just thought that this whole thing would happen like within a minute, near enough. Yeah, but I'd say what I love about all this is just the setup, because quite clearly when I watched it. I'd forgotten this this sequence if I had seen it a long time ago. And yeah, it's just, you think it's just Tim's already fixed it? Red herring, isn't it? Because you, you absolutely think it's Richard. It's got to be him. You know, it's it's the casting. It's Richard Griffiths. It's got to be him. You know, great exchange, as you said, uh, Robert. You know, he looks no. at the script, so he's done the job, isn't he? And there it is, and everybody's happy, and then it whips across to Richard E. Grant, and it's not, and it's not right, and you, you know, it's it's that classic kind of you know sideswipe. You think it's all over, and it isn't. And it's great. I mean, you play it on his satisfaction, you know, he's sitting next to him, you know, quite clearly, Harry doesn't know what's going to happen, but we know what's going to happen. Tim knows what's going to be. He's so happy that he's fixed and, it, you know, and then, you know, that the payoff then is fantastic. And I think none of the audience are actually thinking about the fact that this has just undone his date with Mary. I thought of that. Uh, we might have talked to him in his dressing room because he was going to do that earlier and then still go to the restaurant. No, that's no, a, not at all. Not I, again, bad. if they did, then well, they're better than me because I didn't see it coming. But that again, that's the that's the writing and the directing. You know, these are all things that you're in mm-hmm. the moment, just like he's in the moment. This is again, as we've been saying, from his point of view, from Tim's point of view. So we're with Tim. So we shouldn't be aware of all these other things happening. You know, we we should. They, otherwise, we're telling the story wrong. We're telling the punchline before the gag. Mm. Yeah, and I think one yeah. sort of just just looking back at what you said earlier about the extra, she's still doing it a tiny bit at this point. <laughs> <laughs> now you see that oh, you can't yeah. unsee it. That's the problem. I like the fact that we, as you said earlier, that we like we get to see the soldiers' reaction, and we see all of the actors really, and the, the handheld camera movements and like the quick pan over to Richard E. Grant. Like it feels like we're watching through Tim's eyes almost. Yeah, absolutely. Is that and that and that is a. Yeah, that's a directorial decision. You know, all as we say, the whole film is is through Tim's. Like, we're with Tim in this film. We want to feel what he's feeling. We want to kind of, you know, he's doing it for us. We're going back in time with him. You know, we're we're agreeing or disagreeing with his decisions. You know, yeah. we're seeing how it plays out, and you know, we're hopefully feeling happy when he's happy, and obviously feeling disappointed when he's disappointed. You know, he's going through this whole roller coaster of emotions, and that's that's the point of this film, isn't it? Which is the point of any any rom com, mm-hmm. you know? He's got to get it, lose it, you know, and 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 try and get it back, and and hopefully there's a happy ending. 
To me, and I'm trying to make sure this sounds like the compliment it truly is, all the camera work feels almost camcorder-esque. Like, you, each scene, obviously it's, it's H, much more HD than you'd get with your average camcorder, and like the colours and everything are all great. But it almost does sort of feel as though there's just someone there who's just sort of filming it casually, and it gives you that sort of fly-on-a-wall experience, which I think is better. And, it's, I mean, it's, it's most clear at the end, when he goes back in right. time to see his dad for the last time, and you've got that shot of the stairs and everything. And I like that. It feels so personal, like you're watching someone's home video. Yeah, and there's, and it goes back to when he first goes into the dressing room, Richard Griffith's dressing room. He goes in, and then the camera kind of handheld follows follows him in, as if we've gone in the room with him. And it kind of reveals Richard Griffiths. And it doesn't make a big play of, oh, here's, here's, the, here's a famous actor. You know, same with Richard Grant. It's kind of messy. He's introduced by this kind of messy whip pan. And we're not expecting it. And we're not expecting, we're kind of expecting the thing to be all Just over and there. everyone's happy. And the whip pan kind of whips over to, and the way the judge says, oh, and one final word. Oh, I, hang on. I thought that was the final word. Oh, it isn't. And, oh, hang on. This is Richard E. Grant. So it's, it's, it's catching us on the, on the hoof. Just in the way, almost like the, the camera's following the action and it's not, it's not prepared for this, this bit. Just in the same way we're not prepared for it. I love that so, both celebrity cameos are in the same scene because I feel like, you wouldn't normally do that. Like, I, you know, I feel like if you got the famous actors, you might want to sort of spread them out a bit in the film. The other, yeah. So the idea that he just goes, right, pop, plonk them both in, you know, and, and, yeah, but and also so it, it does comes... catch you off guard. It's sort of, you, you, you're just going over the, oh, that's Richard Griffiths who was in this, and then, you know, and you're, you're thinking where you know Richard Griffiths already from, and you're thinking, oh, and if you're, if you're with someone, you might be, who do, you know, like, oh, you know, he was the guy in that, and then suddenly it's like, and there's Richard E. Bloody Grant, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it totally catches you on the hook, which is the whole point of this whole sequence, yeah. that we think it's over and it's not. And that's how it's, I think, directed and how it's... Uh, and it works for me. You know, I didn't see it coming. And it makes it all the funnier for it. And I, I don't know both the actors well enough, but I, I assume they are stage actors as well as screen actors. They seem like the sort of actors who would... I think the English tradition, most actors will, will do stage as well as, as TV. It's only really, I think, in America that actors go sort of straight into telly and don't do a lot of stage. But I think in England, it's a, it's a theatrical tradition. I'd be very surprised, especially the likes of the older actors that haven't done stage or don't want to do stage. I mean, that's where you do audio dramatic training is geared towards theatre rather than TV and film. I think Robert De Niro, I remember an interview saying he was the one who said that, you know, the whole oh, Robert, why don't you do theatre? And he says, because I'm a film actor. I do film acting. I don't do theatre, you know. And he's and that's I think that's much more an American tradition. The British tradition is theatre. I found it a big surprise, just in terms of theatre actors and stuff. That quite recently in London we had like John Malkovich down there doing a show, which is just awesome. You know, the, the, I don't think I'm doing them a disservice in America to say you know they're not theatre actors or they couldn't handle theatre. I mean, it's just a different medium. That's the thing. So I'm sure it, it well. People were being a bit unkind, I think, saying, oh, American actors are coming to, to do plays in the UK because they want to kind of, you know, show that they're real actors, that unless you do theatre, you're not a true actor in some way, which is very unfair because it's like it's a different way of performing. It's a, it's a different medium. So to say one is better or worse than the other, I mean, theatre is theatre. You're playing to the gallery. You know, a film, TV... You raise an eyebrow and the camera's right there. You know, it's a completely different way of performing. And you find that, you know, I find that when you get theatre actors, if they've worked in television and film, 
they will obviously vary that performance. But if you get a, a theatre actor who hasn't done television and film, you'll find that performance is probably a bit big and you've got to calm it down because it's a bit stagey or because they're obviously playing to the gallery and not playing to the camera that's, that's two inches from their face, you know. There's a great moment with Harry because when Tim leans over and says it's brilliant, Harry actually smiles. Yeah. Like, he appreciates that Tim likes it. But he's still, he's so. still, he's hunched, he's hunched, and he's in the right, chair. Right, he, he's, he's not looking of, at the stage, no, he's, he's looking like, he down. Can't bear to look, can he? he can't bear to look. But he's smiling. Little moment. And I love this stage. I love the set. And actually, Sharp, like, I guess he does what he's doing, what you do, what you do as well. Like, he's, Harry's in among the audience, he's not, like, in the front row or anything. Like, he's, yeah. he's reading everyone's reactions, isn't he? Oh yeah, he's hiding. He's trying to feel the room, absolutely. But it's it's absolute murder. I mean, it's just horrendous. He's sitting there wanting the whole thing to end, but obviously he wants it to end in a good way. He doesn't want it to end in a bad way. But he's sitting there, you know. He's playing every line in his head. You know, he's. It's just. Uh, it's it's awful. It's awful to sit and I think watch your own stuff with an audience because you're willing them to like it. And as I say, you. You're trying to feel the room. Does it work? Does this line work? Have I got them? Are they bored? You know, did they laugh at the right place? You know, did they cry? Did they cry at the right place? Are they, uh, you know, are they interested at all? Has half the audience left? All those things are happening to him and he's just sunk in the chair. I love it because he's just really sunk in down in the chair where Tim is kind of upright and he's kind of all happy. It's all got to be all right. But, you know, Harry doesn't know that. I will always remember. Uh, and I think I definitely mentioned it when we were doing the Godfather podcast, was that when we had the premiere for Unstable, like, I think it was a mistake me sitting in the front row, because it was, I mean, I can't imagine how painful it would to be a feature, because that was the longest 20 minutes of my life, I think, <laughs> just sitting there, and basically noticing that, like, two of the speakers were out of sync, a tiny, no one else noticed, I turned to the person next to me, do you notice? No, not really. But it was bugging me. There was an ever so slight echo between the two speakers and things like that. And so I was just sat there, you know, unable to spot anyone's reaction because it probably would see completely unprofessional if I turned around to, yeah, to, yeah. to see what they were all doing. So thankfully, when, because it, it was a silent audience for the whole thing. So thankfully, when the credits rolled and it got a good cheer, it was like, oh, phew. And I yeah, but, yeah, but uh, up to that point... Yeah. Up to that point, horrendous, wasn't it? I mean, it was just, as you say, longest 20 minutes here. You, know, you can't see anything. You don't know if people are bored, yawning, moving, wherever. If anything, it's the sound. You know, people are, are shuffling or coughing or sneezing. If there's noise, that's not a good sign. They're not focused. You know, def- definitely it's not a good sign if people are leaving. They go to the toilet and come back. I mean, that's really bad. Yeah, I think so, it's a relief for it being a short <laughs> film that that wasn't as much of a worry. But yeah, I think with a lot of that as well, like, I think with the case of that, a lot of the people who were there were there because of me. Like, there were those who were there for the actors and those who were just there for the entertainment. But I think, for the most part, people did come with the aim of supporting my film rather than with the aim of getting any entertainment themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, but you know what? You know, everyone says that I'm here for you. I just, you know, I I, I don't care what it's like. I'm going to like it. Don't believe them. Everybody, if there's a film on, you know, they're going to get into it. And if they don't like it, they're not going to like it. You know, in a way, it's worse if it's people you know. If it's strangers, they don't like it. They just walk away and never see them again. If it's friends and family who, who you know don't like it, then that stays. You know, every time you see them and that that subject comes up, you know that they don't like it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I it's realize it's you know. awful when I know, I mean, you probably both noticed <laughs> 
<laughs> when I know that yeah. I'm talking to someone who has seen my film, I have a habit of bringing it up so much. <laughs> like, even though it is just a short film, and I realised that in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. It was such a big part of my life for like nine months that if I know someone knows what I'm talking about, then I'm I'm talking about it. So both of you feel free whenever to tell me to shut up when I've mentioned it too much. Because like, no, we all listen. We all do it because it is like you you've say, made two you, features. You can talk about them all you like. It's a, it's a very, of course it's a personal thing. It's it's more than the film. You know the film itself. You know when you show it, it's almost like when the film is done and you're showing it to people. It that moment for you is over. Because the work is done. You're now sitting in the audience like Harry is with everyone else, hoping everyone likes it, but you can't stop it. You can't go back and fix it now. It's done. It's locked. It's done. It's there forever. And that is that in its own way is, is horrendous. But that aside, it's the journey you took. You know, you wrote a script. You know, you pulled uh, people together. You got a producer. You got, um, you made the thing. All of those things are life changing individually. So put them all together. The fact that you actually made something at all. You know, when people, lots of people talk about it and, and never get to that point. So you've, you've already got that thing that you've made. You've made that chair. You've made that, that thing that, that represents you. So that's huge. So absolutely, you should never apologize again for what it means to you. It may not mean anything else to anybody else. And everyone can, you know, will you stop talking about your film? But obviously they don't understand what you went through and what it means to you. Only you understand that. As a completely unrelated question, just because I don't think I get to ask this question to anyone much at all. Can you tell us, Piotr, about the experience of the Baptists? Because obviously you were nominated for an episode of Emmerdale. What, what uh, was that whole thing like? Yeah, it was a surprise. I mean, it was it was a nice surprise. I mean, when I the added kind of bonus was when I was nominated as you know part of the team as the director of that particular episode that was that was nominated for a BAFTA. One, obviously, it's a surprise. It's a very pleasant surprise. And two, it was they hadn't actually been nominated for about six years. So it was an added kind of bonus. So it was like they were really happy that it had been nominated. So when you go along with a television episode, you're part of a big team. It's There's less of me in that episode than there is in a feature film. In this particular yeah. one, though, there was probably a lot more of me in there because it was really long and we had to cut. It was a it was a. About a 25 minute episode, and I cut almost nine minutes out of it. So I had a very kind of overlong episode. So there was a lot of work went into it. So it was very satisfying. So I felt like, you know, there's a reason why we were there. We had put a lot of work into it. It wasn't a, a, just a normal episode that goes out every week. There was a lot of work went into it. So yeah, I was proud of it. And obviously, yeah, you're, what's to say? I mean, <laughs> you're nominated, you, you dress up. You go to the show and you hope you win. You know, we didn't win on that night, but the whole experience was fantastic. But, you know, it, it didn't make as much of an impression on me as I thought it would. Okay. I mean, do you have, when you're a director on like a TV show and stuff, do you feel as almost like you're, you're intruding a group of people who already know each other quite well with cast and crew, or is it often quite a comfortable position to I, take? I thought that would be that way, because obviously if you're, if you're making a film, you're there from the beginning. You know more than everybody else. It's it's everybody's coming to you. You know, a long-running show uh, or a TV show that's already been set up, if you're not the lead director and you've come in and it's already been set up and it's running, everyone's cast, the sets are built, you know, everyone's on board, you haven't, you don't really choose the people you work with. So you come on and you do feel a little bit like, you know, you're the new boy 
and every, the whole thing is kind of running without you, if you like. doesn't matter which director comes in. But that doesn't mean you can't bring anything to it. And what I found was, especially on the longer-running ones, was especially the actors like the fact that you're new because it's the one thing that changes. Everything else is the same because they're working with the same people every day. And the only thing that really changes is the director. So when the director comes in, it's suddenly fresh again. Right, what's this director going to do? How are they going to see it? You know, and they were very open to taking direction and really wanted to talk about stuff and just wanted you to add something. So that was really... Um, I do find it weird how TV shows change the director so much, considering how much of a big role the director has. I always do find it interesting how TV series, you know, just have a director for a particular block rather than to do, you know, the whole series. Obviously, with soap, it's different. But with, like, you know, when you had, like, Shakespeare and Hathaway and stuff, like, it's interesting that you have, you know, multiple directors on and it's not just the same person's vision for the whole thing. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, Shakespeare and Hathaway, I was the lead director, so I kind of set that up. So I had a lot more involvement and it was a lot more satisfying. But the other shows, you come on. Um, but, you know, the scripts are different. You know, the, the, the world, uh, you get to know the world, but that script is different. They haven't done that script before. So there obviously every, there's a lot of, and if it's a good script, if it's an interesting script, then you're using all those tools. You're still having the same conversations about costume, about props, about production design. Obviously you're choosing the locations with the location manager. There's still a lot of you in that show, just not as much as if you were doing a project, a one-off project like a feature. It's just varying degrees of, of influence that you have. Is so, Shakespeare and Hathaway available in the States for like people like Robert to watch, or is it only a UK thing at the moment? It's on BritBox, I think that's got... Yeah, which so I, haven't, Box I keep is, forgetting to Box see is if it's in the free. States, then. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so again, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how Shakespeare and Hathaway plays in the States. You know, it's very I re- kind of... I, I haven't seen it all the way through, but I really enjoy what I've seen, and I've been meaning to watch it through, because it's a perfect balance between like the drama and the comedy. Like It's, it's really well done. Well, I'm glad you think so, because it was, a, it, you know, other stuff like Father Brown is a world that kind of most people know, and it, it's not it's based on reality, but it's the 50s, it's a world that we know. Shakespeare and Hathaway was mm. a world that was created that absolutely doesn't exist. It's a, it's a Stratford that doesn't exist, you know, we're trying to create this kind of Tudor Stratford that doesn't really exist in reality, and also this kind of quirky, it's all a little bit unreal, the whole thing, it's all a bit surreal. But in a fun way, we did create a world. We definitely created a world in Shakespeare and Hathaway, which is very different to the other shows that were done um, by in, that in the team. Right, in, 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 to try and say this in the once again in the in the best way possible, it is it's like the sort of thing which you can watch in in two minds. You can watch it as a turn your mind off and just relax and enjoy the comedy, or you can take it as being properly invested into the crimes they're solving. and So, yeah, there's. I think it's great because it's, it's not one of those things which you find too hard to follow if you got it on in the background, but it's also one of the things which you can appreciate more if you're watching it. Yeah, and I think properly. it's quite, yeah, it's colourful, it's visual, it's, again, that thing of... And it's oh, daytime these, TV, isn't it? Like these are, these, the, yeah, but I think yeah. it's, I think the quality is, is, is kind of, is primetime quality. I think in, mm. in, like, I think it uh, could have been primetime, 100%. In Australia, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's a classic kind of Sunday afternoon slot, like Heartbeat was or something like that. It's one of those that I think the, the quality of every department is, is solid. 
And, you know, it's one of those shows, again, you watch it and you want to see where they go. You want to see the locations because locations are in... I always look at it as every location I choose is a place that I want to go and see. And hopefully you then photograph it. And obviously, so it's almost like a travel log as well. Because, you know, if you say it's set in Stratford. And, and you know, when you watch a film like About Time, and you watch it and you go, I want to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to be to where this was filmed. <laughs> so I guess if you are, you know, choosing locations in the mindset that you want people to actively search them out after watching it almost. Yeah, I mean, look at About Time. You know, these are ultimately houses, but they're all cool houses, aren't they? I mean, we, we want to go and to that beach house that, that his family where his family which is rental for two grand for a weekend <laughs> you know even final even episode Harry's... we get every guest host on to share the to share the house for the weekend <laughs> you know Harry's house as well it's a classic kind of like you know Hollywood thing you know you watch Hollywood movies and people are living in these fantastic places you know it's like how can they afford that and like, you kind of have that with Harry alright he's a playwright but he's got to be really if he's not independently wealthy then he's doing really well as a playwright because that house is really expensive, you know. But again, you don't care, but you don't want to go Mary's into a pokey flat. little house, you know. Mary's flat is the only one which is small, and I like it for that. Like, it 100% feels real, Mary's flat. Yeah. And actually, it's possibly worth going yeah. back into the minute. <laughs> um, yeah, so... going back, you know, going back to the minute, what I wanted to say, you know, following off what Robert said, is the, you know, with the extras and so on, it's the reactions for me. Yeah, see how many times they cut to the cut to the crowd. This is where the the extras are really important because if they're not reacting properly, this scene doesn't work as well. Because all you've got is Robert um, is Richard E. Grant, obviously drying, but the awkwardness comes from when we cut to the audience. Yeah. So if you didn't have those cuts to the audience and you're just looking at R- Richard E. Grant, your feeling wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't feel as awkward. You feel awkward because the audience feels awkward. And you, you, you start with a lot of fast cuts and fast movements. Then he stands there, looks out, and you get Tim watching with a big grin on his face that slowly drops a switch. Yeah. And then you have just got a... I mean, it's only like five seconds or so, but it's it's long enough to be uncomfortable of him standing there and sl- slowly realising that he doesn't remember a word of what he's supposed to say. Yeah, and again, Richard E. Grant's got no lines, so he's got to do it all with that mm. expression. And again, it's, this is visual, this is filmmaking, isn't it? It's fantastic. But it's, it, it's the combination of the two things. And as you say there, you know, the fast cuts slow down as well. So it becomes, oh, we're holding on, on him a little bit too long. We're going back to the audience. Nothing's happening. Oh, this is really awkward. You know, and that, uh, that works. Um, and I'm noticing like most of the extras look really serious. There's one extra just behind Tim who smiles for a while and then just at the end of the shot. Yeah, becomes more serious. And I love, yeah, the the amount of detail put the reactions that you've got. Some people whispering to each other at the back, and Harry looking very, very angry. Yeah. Like, like considering how angry we've seen him throughout, I think the fact that he's silently angry makes it all the more like <laughs> terrifying and tense. Well, he's. I think he's always somebody that kind of is hiding his. He's always putting on a front, isn't he? He's always like he's he's. He's under stress, like when when Tim first arrives. You know, every scene that we see with Harry, he's under some kind of stress, and he's and he's and he's trying to hide it by kind of not joking about it, but by trying to calmly kind of explain what is going on. Mm-hmm. But you can tell that he's ready to kind of explode. Um, but he's trying to hold it all in, and here as well. I mean, he's just sitting there, and you just feel for him. But all these people are kind of all around him, uh, thinking, "What is happening here?" To flash forward, it's a beautiful shot at the very end of the minute 
where Richard E. Grant just looks completely terrified. The background's blurred around him, and the camera's ever so slightly tilted up towards him. And I, I never noticed how sort of beautifully shot that one shot is. And again, I, I think that's also great. Again, is this thing of every every department. You know, I think when everything works, you don't notice it. And like you say, if you if you now think about it, now the camera work and the and the photography in the film, I think is is great. But it serves the story. You don't stop there and go, oh, wonderful. You I've just said that go about Sam. I've said that about soundtracks before. Where I've said the best film soundtracks are the ones you don't notice. Well, you shouldn't. Notice. I mean, obviously they're not. They're not the most memorable film soundtracks, but the best soundtracks are the ones which just accompany the scene and no one notices at all. Yeah, and I think the music, that's the thing. When music's used badly, that's when you notice it. When it's done well and it's actually helping the story, like, you know, the cut to him in the gallery when it cuts to the cure, uh, I think that's a great you know, use of music there. I think it's obviously great when uh, we've talked about it already, when she walks away and that and that and that tune kicks in and basically the lyrics take over and they tell us what's what's kind of happening between the two of them. You know, that's music is again another tool. It's it's when you can't use other things. If the music isn't adding anything, then it's why is it there? You know, it's yeah. got to be there's got to be a reason why you're putting it in there. It's not just the case of oh we need some music here. And so the the wrong song is oh that can just ruin a movie. Yeah, definitely. So, have we got any other comments on this minute before we move to our other minute? <laughs> no, I think it's just that again. The the use of of you know the slightly looking up at him, it makes him look you know bigger in the frame. It's a bit dramatic. You put the back yeah. out of focus. It isolates him on stage again. You're now also feeling what he's feeling standing there on the stage, completely drying. So you're getting that added bonus as well because it's Richard E. Grant as well. So you're kind of, I don't know, there's a subliminal, because he's a famous actor, that must work as well. If it was an unknown actor, you'd be kind yeah. of, you probably wouldn't feel it as much because it's Richard E. Grant, you think, but it can't, he can't dry, it's Richard E. Grant in the back of your head. You know what I mean? So I believe the bonus minute that I gave you this week was minute 19, which opens with a word that we don't say on the show. <laughs> and it's followed by with followed by do you want and it's from harry and i'm remembering now i did send this to you so we could relook at our introduction to harry and compare it to sort of how he is later on so it appears past me was a lot more intelligent with this <laughs> than, than currently yeah i mean this i mean it's just a great introduction to a character isn't it i mean again i didn't know he was i didn't know particularly that he was in it if I did know, I'd forgotten at this point. And he turns up, and it's all very casual. He's come to London. You're focused on the fact that he's coming to London. And again, he's all up, and he's happy. You know, new life is starting. And then this is like the worst thing. You know, the first thing that happens, he opens the door, and this guy comes at him in this mood. And I mean, oh, God. And this is where he's going to be staying for, as you know, we don't know how long. I mean, how awful. How awful. Uh, so then Tim carries on. I'm James's son. Who? James Lake. What about him? He said you had a room. Go in there and wait. Quietly, I mean it. Don't make a sound, or I'll kill you. <laughs> it's such an amazing introduction. I was actually having the first good idea I've had for a decade when you rang on the doorbell. <laughs> but now it's gone, you little shit. <laughs> How's your dad? Weird cock, I always thought. Something weird about him. Really? Yeah, never really liked him, actually. Your mum still look like Andy Warhol. Well, he's got so many good lines in this minute. I, he's, got all, he's got all the best lines. Got, this is why you like him. You hate him. He's awful. He's brilliant all at the same time. Yeah. 
Yeah. And his horror movies yeah, funny. Like you say, they're all good lines. And, but can you imagine now? And it goes on, obviously. It goes on up into the room. But this is someone he's got to hang out with for God knows <laughs> how long, you know. And it's just... The one what, person he can't can escape. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he thinks it's all new and he's he's gone from this lovely house on the beach to this sort of pokey room in this house and he doesn't know what's going to happen and he's with this miserable guy who hates his dad. You know, it doesn't start well, does it? But it's, no, uh, and once it's... again, if Tim is the unreliable narrator at this point, maybe he's really not this bad. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just how Tim's remembering his first impression of him being. I mean, we've, uh, Robert, I remember we talked quite a bit about A, the weird cock I always thought line, and then your mum's still like Andy Warhol. Like, yeah. Yeah. The Andy Warhol weird. thing, yeah. Apparently, it was originally Churchill in the script, and they changed it to Andy Warhol. It's, it's such a weird exchange, which makes it so brilliant. But yeah. And again, is again what we said. You know, the casting is perfect. You know, Tom Holland just just absolutely makes it work. You know, again, he hasn't. He's got these lines to work with, and and you you know his character almost immediately, just from the way he walks, just the way that you know he brings him. You know, the way he just holds his rucksack. I love the way he just holds his rucksack and kind of pushes him into the house. You know, into the room to stay in there. All those little things they all show character. So you're introducing somebody very quickly. The rucksack's like a child on a school trip, really, which I think makes him seem sort of more immature. <laughs> so what what are your overall thoughts on this minute as a whole? Well, I, I want to point out, revisiting this minute really quick, is that I'm pretty sure it's Richard Griffiths on one of the play posters on the wall. It is, yeah. So yeah. he's been in one of his plays before called Several Bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I like this one. And again, it's nice. What that's again watching it watching the film again, I noticed that. And it's again what it's fun when you watch a movie again because you see all those little things. It means nothing to you when you watch it the yeah, first time. You don't know he's coming. Yeah, when you first see this, you're not even looking at that poster because you're looking at him on the sofa in this place, you know. And then suddenly the second time, your eyes gone gone somewhere else. So that's just fun. I love stuff like that because that's. I've looked at that minute on pause, that moment on pause, and not twigged at all that that's Richard Griffiths. <laughs> like it's a much younger Richard Griffiths as well. Yeah. Isn't it? So it sort of suggests that. Harry's been writing for him for a while. Yeah, and again, that feeds, again, you watch it the second time, that feeds into the scene where Tim goes and talks to him, you know, the fact that he's probably been working with Harry for so long. And if it is Richard Griffiths that he's talking about, and this is this actor that he's been working for for so long, you know, this is an actor who's let him down, you know, maybe yeah. because, you know, at that it point, makes it even worse. The line, it makes it even worse. It's somebody he's relying on, you know. So, yeah, the rest that thing, going maybe back Maybe he expresses why he's so offended with a friend of Harry's coming in and telling him to check the lines. Oh, completely. <laughs> yeah, but mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> who, who wouldn't be, you know, a consummate actor yeah. like that, and you've got a young guy coming in kind of saying, oh, you know, maybe you should check the lines. It's like, on any level, that's just wrong, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and but the rucksack thing is great. He doesn't, he doesn't ask him to take it off. He doesn't say, I'll take your rucksack, I'll make yourself at home. He literally just, I don't care. No, he sit in there, he just grabs <laughs> don't it. move, you know, because I'm, I'm focused on this thing. And he goes away, he comes back, and then says, yep, I thought I had it, it's gone. And then, you know, he, he gives him the one. I just think it, it's just how, like you say, a minute, just a, just a couple of lines, a little bit of blocking, and just a, a kind of a scene that you'll remember forever. It's just, it's great on every level. I don't know how he succeeds so well, where so many other directors and writers seem to fail, in introducing an unlikable character in a way that you can still like him. Like, it's such a skill, which I think is so... Overlooked that quite a lot of the characters, which are characters you wouldn't typically like in a film, Richard Curtis makes work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is casting. 
I think if you have the right actor doing it, because, you know, they deliver it well. And there's a there's that self-deprecation, I think, which is very kind of English as well. You you take the piss out of other people, but you're also taking the piss out of yourself. It's like the Dad's Army thing, you know. Dad's Army works because it's just, you're taking the piss not out of these characters, but just out of kind of English culture. So you're laughing at yourselves. And kind of Tom Holland, you know, the character is almost, you're, you're invited to kind of laugh at him. And not not taking particularly seriously, and you also then understand where he's coming from. That's also important because you do understand. Like we've said it, we understand that kind of that mental block that when you're focusing on something and someone breaks it, it's really annoying. But I mean, in terms of unlikable character, like take a look at Bill Nye as Billy Mac in Love Actually. Like we like how he's such a horrible person, so like <laughs> he, he does it well. I mean, credit to Bill Nye as well with like how well he can do likeable and unlikable. But I think you touched on it, Luke. I think you said it when you said that these kind of characters say things and do things that you wish you could but you would never do. And so you kind of, you like the fact that they get away with it and they, they got the kind of, they're brave enough to say it or they just don't care. They don't care if they offend people, you know, they're just in that moment. And it's quite kind of pure, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So... If you, Piot, could go back in time to any point in your life and revisit or change or just relive any moment, what moment would that be? Oh, this was quite... It, I, at first, I thought it was really hard to think of something. Then it started, and it was just a blow. Um, it started with the film. I'd go back and just, you know... Now, when you're... It's like doing the third take, the fourth take. I look at the film, and I go, right, I'd do that differently. I'd do that differently. I'd do that. I'd want to tweak that a little bit. I'd want... And this is the problem. You just, and I think even if I went back in time 25 times and changed it, I would still come back to the same point and still want to go back and tweak something else. It's just, (laughs) so I think that's the curse of it because you just have to let it go. And I think someone said when we were editing, someone said you never finish the film or you never finish a project, you just run out of time. And that's exactly how I felt because I've still got a page on my computer of stuff I'd like to fix. I just had (laughs) to stop. You know, oh, no, I, I, I did that with Unstable before we had the premiere and it's an ever so slightly different version that's actually up on YouTube now. Like, I I mean, the main difference is a piece of music. Like, my friend had written a song which was originally in the script. She didn't write it for the film. She wrote it and I heard it and I was like, this is perfect. Can I use it? And we never got around to getting a good recording of the song before the premiere. And then I helped her with a music video and we got a good recording of the song then. And then just for fun, I was like, you know what, I'll see what it'd be like if I edited that back in. And straight away, it was like, okay, I've got to use this version of the film next, because it fit like a glove. And so, yeah, and stuff like that. I think I fixed a couple of, like, continuity things and bits and bobs. So I think it's enough that even with the change of music, people who've only seen the film once probably won't notice. But for me, it's quite a radical difference between the two. And I'd still want to do different things, so I can't imagine the pain of a feature film. And, and you know the, the fear of releasing it into the into the wild. Yeah, I mean you, you do. You kind of when you when you get through it to the other end, you kind of go, "What possessed you to to put yourself through all this?" Um, but there's a perverse satisfaction in it as well that you. It's like anything, I suppose. It's like climbing a mountain, or so. It's there, and you try it, and you get through it. It's a very personal thing. I can't mm. really explain why you put yourself through this kind of stress. I think it's a way of I don't know. Kind of seeing how good you can be or pushing something. I don't know what it is. If someone could explain it to me, it's a, it's a mental, it's a mental problem, I think. But there's definitely a kind of, there's a, there's expression and also it's a, there's a perfectionism to it. You're trying to work, 
create something perfect in an imperfect world. So this whole, and I totally relate to, I mean, everyone must relate to the, to the girlfriend and, you know, saying the wrong thing and wanting to go back in the room. And yeah, so I think, you know, it, it, it that's why it relates. I think that's why the film relates on so many levels because you, you want to kind of perfect that thing you did wrong. So, mm-hmm. and girlfriends is the, is the best example because you sit and go, why did I say that? If I just went back in and said something else, maybe the outcome would be different, but it's, that's why it's great that he, sets up the Margot Robbie situation where every time he goes back, it doesn't fix it because it's not meant right. to be. Whereas this, when it is meant to be, it's very easy. Okay. Have you got anything to promote to I, our listeners? I, oh, I, sorry. Before, before we get to that, this week made me think of a moment I wanted to go back and fix again because it, I did competitive speech in college and there was this one event where in the final round... I forgot a single line of my speech, froze, and in my head, I, it was probably just a few seconds, I don't know. In my head, it felt like forever, because I am going back, picturing the pages of the speech, reading through to that same spot to try to remember where I am, and it cost me winning. I was actually told later, yeah, you would have won if not for that blank. And, and I'm like, I came back the next year and won that event, which was fine, but I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'll go back and fix that, and I'm like, but then the other person doesn't get to win. And then suddenly I felt like a really good person. And I'm like, it's yeah, weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe then I wouldn't come back the next year and do the other speech and win with that one. And I don't know. I'd like to be in that moment again, even if it goes just as badly. Yeah, I think, I think maybe is the point. That's it. Because I agree with you what you're saying there about, you know, even just replaying the moment and not changing anything is kind yeah. of good. Because I'd really like to go back and, and shoot the film now knowing that. It came out all right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wouldn't change anything. I'd just go through the motions like he does, you know. When like he, he does later, back. yeah. Yeah. And he just, he says, I just enjoy the moment. I know what's coming so I can just enjoy it. And that's, that's not, but then it changes. That experience changes. There's something about that not knowing that creates the satisfaction at the end of it. You know, if you knew yeah. you were going to win, you wouldn't, wouldn't try as hard, would you? Clearly. Probably not. No. Cause you, you would think you wouldn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you've got to promote um, to our listeners, Piotr? No, I just like them to watch my film. There's <laughs> many, you know, when you when you make when you uh, spend 15 years on something, you know, and you create something, you know, especially as a filmmaker, you want people to see it. You want an audience. So, you know, the nice thing about a film is that it exists forever, and it's there, and it's a story that can be told at any time and is relevant at any time. As we said, we can watch black and white films, we can watch old films, and they will tell you something different every time you watch them. And it's the same here. I kind of just feel that you want people to watch it and know how they react, even if they hate it. Yeah. Yeah, so people can find The Last Witness, as we said in the first episode, on DVD and on Amazon, Amazon Prime. things like that. Yeah, um, on Amazon Prime really and on point. iTunes and on DVD. And uh, again, I'm I'm very pleased that you liked it. Thank you. Because you got... I can't remember the name of the guy who was your lead, but you've got Tulula Riley and Michael Gambon. Like it's a it's an incredible cast. Alex Pettifer, Alex Pettifer is the lead. Yeah. Tulula Riley, uh, Michael Gambon, and Robert Jenskiewicz, who is probably the best known actor in Poland in the cinema. But say I, I've seen when you've shared stuff of like your of like the Polish copy of it that he's the center of the advertising in Poland. Yeah, sense. I mean, he's a, he's a big actor in Poland. He's, uh, he's a very well-known actor, and we were very lucky to get him. And he is the last witness. I mean, he plays the main character. 
once again, where can our listeners find you on social media? So at Piotrkopiak, uh, hashtag Piotrkopiak, you know, the normal places. Uh, it's always my name. And on Facebook, that's where I normally update people on what's happening with The Last Witness. And Robert, where can listeners find you? Robert E.G. Black on social media or go to lemmingdrops.com to find links to everything. Listeners can find me on social media at low underscore bottle zero on Twitter. They can find me on Instagram at the Ginger Luke on Facebook at Luke Allen Film. They can find all my content, podcast appearances, radio, short films. Those words aren't in the right order, but you get the idea. Newspaper articles, things like that. Basically, anything that I'm vaguely involved in is probably on my website at lukeallen.co.uk. Uh, this podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Two Mins About Time. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. Uh, Robert, would you like to say goodbye to our listeners? Because I've run out of time to say goodbye. I'll say, uh, wait, which one's which? We're leaving, so Anyangi Keseo. Korean. <laughs> very nice, very nice. The Two Minutes About Time theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of the About Time theme originally composed by Nick Laird Close. Two Minutes About Time is a production of Lemming Drop Studios in association with Bottle O Productions. <laughs> <laughs>